Climate Law Matters. Interview with David Rauch. Investing for Sustainable Impact. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I'm joined by David Rauch, a financial services partner at Freshfields, with expertise in sustainable investing. He is the author of The Social Licence for Financial Markets, Reaching for the End and Why It Counts as well as the co-author of A Legal Framework for Impact, Sustainability Impact and Invested Decision-Making, which we are going to discuss in more detail today. David, thank you very much for joining me. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you were involved in producing a report that was commissioned by the UN Environment Programme Finance Initiative, Principles for Responsible Investment and the Generation Foundation, as well as being published by Freshfields. So can you tell the listener why this report was published in the first place? Yes. So the report was commissioned really because the commissioning bodies recognised that there's growing pressure on investors to tackle humanity's core sustainability challenges. And that pressure was coming from two directions. There was financial pressure because there were arguments that those sustainability challenges could damage financial performance in the long term. And there was mounting social pressure But on the other side of the equation, you had investors unsure about what they could or should do as a legal matter, whether they really could tackle these sorts of challenges. And so the purpose of the report was to try to give greater clarity on that legal question. And so who is the intended audience of this report? Well, the intended audience is very broad. It goes without saying that part of the intended audience, of course, is institutional investors and their investment managers. But of course, The way in which investment works depends on a much broader constituency of people than that. So it also really embraces the people who advise them, especially, of course, their lawyers, but a whole raft of other advisory bodies, such as the investment consultants. But it also extends to policymakers because policymakers have an important role in setting the rules of the game. And then beyond them to campaigning bodies and anyone else with an interest in how investment impacts on sustainability goals. So it's a very broad audience indeed. Certainly makes sense, obviously, given they have the policy reform recommendations at the end of the report. That's right. But just more generally then, so this report is extremely impressive. I think it's 559 pages in length with a detailed analysis of 11 jurisdictions. And I understand that a team of over 70 lawyers pulled it together. So it's incredibly impressive. The principal objective, as I understand it, is to survey the law as it applies to investment institutions across those jurisdictions to understand whether the law requires or permits institutional investors to invest for sustainability impact. But David, what exactly does investing for sustainability impact actually mean? Yes, that's a crucial question, and I'm glad you raised it. Now, for the purpose of the legal analysis, we had to create some sharp edges. We have to be very clear what it is we're looking at and what it is we're trying to apply the law to. And so we had to define this activity very clearly that we were looking at. And in some senses, it's easiest to define it by reference to what it's not. What it's not is traditional ESG activity. And again, I'm going to simplify for the purpose of these sharp edges, but traditional ESG activity is essentially 
an outside-in activity. It's a process whereby an investor looks at the risks outside that come to bear on its investment portfolio. So, for example, is it holding a particular stock that is exposed to climate change? If so, does it need to underweight that stock? On the other side of the equation, is there a stock that's going to benefit from climate change? If so, do you overweight that stock? So what you're essentially doing is reflecting environmental social risks in the investment decisions that you make. Now, fairly obviously, if there's a financial benefit from doing that, investors should be doing it anyway. It's not what we were looking at in our report. We were looking at a different activity, which you could think of as an inside out activity. And this is where the investor recognises the, the category of risks that I've just been describing. But instead of simply altering its position internally to try to protect itself as best it can from those risks, it seeks to tackle the root cause of the risk. In other words, it seeks to mitigate its risk by removing the source of risk in the first place. And that's what we mean by investing for sustainability impact. It's actually getting to the core root of the risk. And you can do that by getting companies and other third parties to change the impact that they are having on sustainability factors. So in other words, the activity of investing for sustainability impact operates at two levels of impact. You're looking at particularly portfolio companies and the impact they have on the environment, but also other third parties that are impacting the environment. And you're trying to change that impact. But the investor is itself looking to have an impact on the impact of those third parties. So it's really important to see that there are those two levels of impact. Of course, if an investor can't have an impact on investee companies and policymakers or other third parties, they shouldn't be trying in the first place because it's, they're simply wasting the resources of their fund. And sorry, David, when you say they can't have an impact, what exactly do you mean by that? If it is impossible for them, or if, in fact, the company or the other third party is already adjusting its impact without the need for an investor to be intervening in the process. But principally, if the investor can't actually have any influence, then quite clearly they shouldn't be investing in trying to do so. Thanks, David. So you then distinguish between instrumental IFSI and ultimate ends IFSI. What's the difference? So the distinction that we've drawn here really highlights an important goal of the report, which was to try to provide greater conceptual clarity in sustainable investing in general, because the sustainable investing world is subject to considerable conceptual mist. Now, the first distinction that we've just discussed is this crucial distinction between ESG activity and the activity of investing for sustainability impact in the first place. One is internal one is tackling root causes of risk to the fund. This second distinction between instrumental IFC and ultimate ends IFC is the other key distinction that we wanted to draw, and it is an area where there is considerable confusion. By instrumental IFC, we are describing an activity which is essentially designed to help the fund achieve its financial goals. So you could also say it's financially instrumental. So this is where an investor is seeking to have the positive sustainability outcomes that I mentioned a moment ago, but their goal in doing so is to achieve the long-term 
financial goals of their fund. That's financially instrumental IFSI. Ultimate ends IFSI is where you are engaging in this activity of tackling the root cause of sustainability challenges because you think it's important in itself. Now, it might be that doing so aligns with your financial goals as well. It might be that it's neutral as far as those financial goals are concerned, or it could have a negative impact on the financial goals. The point is that your motivation is to tackle the sustainability challenge more than achieve your financial goals. Now, this is really crucial when you come to the legal analysis because the law for investors is concerned with motivations. What is your reason for doing something? So we needed to separate those two activities out. And when you listen to a lot of discussion in the market at the moment, those activities are utterly mixed together. There is a frequently, especially among lawyers, there is an assumption as soon as you start talking about sustainability in the context of investing, that actually what people are talking about is this ultimate ends activity that we've defined in the report, that the investor is somehow trying to achieve sustainability goals. And what we're trying to do here is to show that there are two very distinct sorts of activity. In terms of how that then ties to the point that you made earlier about obviously risks to the fund, I mean, risks to the fund really ties in with that first point, doesn't it, about instrumental IFSI? Absolutely right. Yes. So we're looking at here with instrumental IFSI something where the trustees or whoever else is responsible for managing the fund has recognised that a sustainability factor like biodiversity or climate change, if it continues to develop in the way it is at the moment, is inevitably going to impact the economy on which the fund relies for its investment return. So now we're going to discuss the Butler's Lost case later in this interview, obviously in the context of sort of charities and things. But in terms of that difference that you've drawn between instrumental and ultimate ends, IPSI, where does that come from? Is it from the investment policy or how do you go about working out what type of IFSI is involved? So there are two sides to that question. The way you work out what sort of IFSI the investor thinks it's engaging in is to talk to them and to listen very carefully to why they say they're doing what they're doing. Are they saying they're doing it to achieve or to facilitate the financial goals that they're legally obliged to pursue, or is it some other reason? On the legal side of the equation, working out whether the investor can or cannot engage in those two, or indeed should engage in any of those activities, that goes to the governing documents of the relevant fund and statute or regulation. All investors have a, a different legal regimes that they're operating under, and you have to look very closely at what that legal regime requires or allows them to do. And as a minimum, all investors have some level of duty to produce financial returns. So instrumental IFSI is always potentially an issue. Ultimate ends IFSI, and I'm sure we'll come back to this in a moment, is not always permitted. And just again, taking a step back, because obviously you've drawn this distinction between IFC and ESG investing. And generally, when you think about sustainable finance, you think about the actual investment decision itself, and that's it. That's the extent of your influence. But obviously here, you're going beyond that. So in what way can investors themselves actually influence the sustainability impact of enterprises, policymakers, and third parties? 
Yeah, so I'm really pleased you focused on this and you've picked this up from the report because this is absolutely right. When people think about sustainable investing, and especially when we lawyers start advising on it, there is an assumption that it is all about individual investment decisions. Now, that is clearly part of it. Should we invest? Should we divest? Is this a company that is damaging the environment? Should we reduce our investment in it to try to encourage them to desist? That is part of it. But actually, an awful lot of research, especially research looking at activity in public markets, suggests that sort of investing and divesting only has a limited impact on its own, if indeed any impact. And so the other crucial levers here are engagement and stewardship with the companies themselves, but also policy engagement. And policy engagement is immensely important because it goes to the rules of the game. You cannot expect a BP or a Shell simply to commit suicide. You can't expect them to design their entire business in a way that just disregards where the policy community is heading. So it is crucial to see those two elements operating together, the policy piece, the company engagement piece, but also there is a capital element there as well. So those three levers. There are other levers as well, of course, because investors can engage with a wider constituency of NGOs and crucially academics. Academics are really important. High quality research can itself change the rules of the game because it changes our perception of the risk. It changes our understanding of the world in which we're operating in. So I think we're seeing growing interest among investors in collaborative exercises with the academic and NGO communities to try to develop new thinking to help us understand the nature of the risks better. And so in the report, you kind of undertake this detailed survey of, in one section, the law in England and Wales. When you are undertaking that survey, are you focusing on particular investors and the legal framework governing their decision making? Yes, we are. We basically went for the jugular, as it were. So we looked at the largest pots of capital that there are. And those are essentially globally and in the UK represented by pension fund investments, insurance companies and investment funds. So in the UK, OICs and unit trusts, but collective investment vehicles. And we are also looking at their investment managers because in practice, most of those bodies will delegate the investment of their funds to their investment managers. So the investment managers have a crucial role in what then happens. But we've focused it on those groups because we thought those were the ones that really control the bulk of AUM assets under management. And of course, whilst the listener can find the detail in the report itself, just to assist at this point, can you set out in broad terms the main obligations, legal obligations that is, on those investors? Yes. So the word obligations isn't necessarily the most helpful word here. In the report, we talk about whether investors are required or permitted to engage in this activity of pursuing positive sustainability outcomes. And unsurprisingly, in the light of what we said earlier, we split the answer into two parts. We deal first with instrumental IFSI and then with the ultimate ENDS activity. And Financially instrumental IFSI is clearly going to be the most important area to look at at the moment, because when you look at the investment constitutions for most 
of the vehicles that I've just described, they are under an obligation to achieve financial goals very often over very long periods, especially pension funds, you know, multiples of decades. And clearly those time periods are time periods within which sustainability risks are going to crystallise. They're crystallising already and there's lots of evidence of that. And they're already having an economic impact. So here, essentially, we concluded that an investor is under a legal duty, that is a legal obligation already to consider how these sorts of sustainability risks are going to have an impact on the financial goals that the investor is legally obliged to pursue. Second, we believe that they are under a legal duty to consider what, if anything, they can do about it. And that would include the sort of IFSI activities we've been describing, if those IFSI activities could have some benefit. And then having considered whether there is anything they should do, they need to act accordingly. Now, that's the sort of legal sleight of hand, of course, because that's a very complicated question as to what they should do at that stage. Certainly, where IFSI approaches, where this activity could help in supporting achieving their financial goals, then there is discretion for them to act. Whether it goes as far as being an obligation to act, I think, is somewhat questionable, although one might be able to conceive of circumstances where it could harden into an obligation. And interestingly, in some of the jurisdictions we looked at, especially Germany, the law does potentially tip over into converting it into a, an obligation. We could have a fairly sort of technical legal discussion at this point, but I think we should spare everyone that. One point, though, that is worth saying that means that there is quite a compelling case for investors to be considering doing this is the way in which investment has developed over the last 20 or 30 years. Investment has been very dominated by something called modern portfolio theory, and that is essentially a financial economic approach to investment, which says that you manage your risk by diversifying your portfolio. And that's all good and proper. It means that the portfolio is not unnecessarily exposed to underperformance from any particular investment that it makes. And that's a good thing. The logic of it, of course, means that you are very broadly diversified over an entire economy. What modern portfolio theory doesn't do, doesn't purport to do, is to address the risk that the whole economy is going to underperform. In other words, modern portfolio theory has pushed investors to a point where they are broadly exposed to the performance of whole economies. And the performance of whole economies is precisely what is threatened by core sustainability risks, such as climate change and plunging biodiversity and so forth. So this does create a very compelling reason for investors to be considering very carefully what they should be doing about it. Just to flip very quickly onto the ultimate ends activity, the scope for investors in the UK to engage in positive sustainability impact activities as in just pursuing sustainability goals as an end in themselves is much more limited. There is quite a limited area in which pension funds may be able to act. It's still slightly controversial among, I think, private practice lawyers as to whether they really can make use of it. This results from some guidance given by the Law Commission back in 2014, based on a case called the Bishop of Oxford's case. 
There's still, in spite of some obiter comments in the House of Lords, I think last year or the year before, there is still some question, I think, in private practice lawyers' minds as to how far pension funds can go. But insurance companies, on the other hand, actually potentially have quite a lot of flexibility here because the duty of directors of a company is simply to pursue the success in the interests of its shareholders. And success is not defined in financial terms. Success could be defined in ways that embrace positive sustainability outcomes. So there is, particularly when you're looking at companies and beyond them, if you think in terms of banks engaging in financing activities, they do, as a legal matter, have more flexibility. What the market is telling them to do is another matter. So that's essentially the two sorts of activity. Just to pick up on one point, I'm interested in what you said about modern portfolio theory and how it then links the financial return of a fund to how the economy is performing. Do you think this should be sort of postmodern portfolio theory, which kind of moves beyond that? I think it may be a work in progress. I'm not an economist. I'm a lawyer. But looking carefully at what is going on, and I have read a number of papers where people are trying to bring the two together. Of course, economists tend to work in terms of financial decisions. And we're saying that IFSI activities, this activity of pursuing positive sustainability outcomes, isn't just an economic activity or in the sense that it's not just about making financial decisions, it's about tackling the root causes of sustainability risks. And I think financial models find it much more difficult to deal with things like that. They also struggle, I think, to deal with the sheer complexity of the risks that we see from climate change. So if you look at economic analysis of climate change, very often it seems to me to be focused on first order risks, first order financial impacts. What it seems to me to struggle much more with is to tell investors how to model for massive people movements. For example, if you get millions of people moving out of equatorial reasons or even Southern Europe to the North because of climate change. So I think there are limits to what economic models perhaps can do for us here. And now for a more practical question. How does IFC work, bearing in mind investors engaging in this kind of investing may end up pulling in completely different directions? Yes, well, that's another important question. And I think the answer to it in a nutshell is collective activity, coordination. Coordination is really important here for two reasons. One, to tackle precisely the sort of risk that you just highlighted, but also because it changes the legal equation. If you apply legal duties on an individualistic basis, as we have tended to do hitherto, if we look at it as an individual cost-benefit exercise, it will frequently result in an investor, I think, concluding that there is nothing that they can do acting on their own, or that in order for them to achieve something on their own, it's going to cost them a huge amount of money, at which simply isn't justified in terms of their particular fund. However, when you introduce the possibility of acting collectively with other investors, that individualistic assessment changes completely because collective activity increases the prospects of success and it spreads the cost of acting across a much wider cost base. So essentially, it changes the legal equation by increasing the prospects of successful activity. And we're seeing a lot of examples of this now. The obvious ones are in climate change, climate alliances such as Climate Action 100, 
and the GFANS initiatives, the Net Zero Alliance is obviously an area of some controversy just at the moment. But there are examples in all sorts of other areas of sustainability, such as biodiversity loss and antimicrobial resistance. So we are seeing a lot of collective investor activity. And David, one final question for this episode. You raised an interesting point in the report about consumer protection and ensuring that marketing materials in relation to sustainable financial funds and products are accurate. Can you expand upon that point, please? Yes. I think we often see financial products being marketed as sustainable. And if you talk to retail investors, very often what they think that means is that the product is having some positive sustainable outcome. It's tackling some sustainability risk. The reality is when you look at what's going on under the bonnet of the product is that it's very often that the manager of the product is engaging in ESG activity, what we described earlier as this sort of outside inactivity where the portfolio is being managed to try to reduce the impact on the portfolio of sustainability risks. But the product isn't actually being run in a way that is seeking to tackle an underlying sustainability challenge. Now, that means there is a potential mismatch. I'm not saying that this is intentional on anyone's part. I think it is partly the result of a growing appreciation of that distinction between ESG activity and activities that are deliberately intended to try to tackle the root cause of sustainability risks. Nonetheless, there is a real risk, I think, for product providers if they're putting products out into the market that they describe as sustainable, that their investor base think they are getting something quite different from what they're actually getting. And that means that there's regulatory risk. And we've seen regulators across the world picking up on this risk now. And indeed, the Financial Conduct Authority has got some regulations coming down the track towards the end of this year is the current timetable to try to address that very point. David, that's all we've got time for in this episode. Thank you very much. We'll continue our discussion in the next episode. Thank you.